All right. <clears throat> Please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. And we'll read the chapter and then have our Bible study <clears throat> accordingly. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 1. says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them, as your, bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, and I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, how your word shows us, Lord, the true reality of sin. Lord, that when we judge things with our eyes by what we see, Lord, by our own perception, Lord, we do not see the evil and the danger of sin. Lord, we might find this woman to be very appealing if we're looking merely with our eyes and if we're being controlled by our lust. But Lord, we thank you that your word does not mince words and that your word, Lord, it pulls the curtain back so that we might see the true reality of what is taking place. Lord, may we hate sin. Lord, not only the sin of adultery and of lust, but Lord, all sin. And Lord, may we see it the way that you do. May we see how detestable it is. And Lord, may we see that sin leads to death so that we will avoid it 
and that we will, Lord, do whatever is necessary, even if it means plucking out our eye or chopping off our hand. Lord, we must do so in order to overcome sin. So, Lord, give us your perspective of sin, and we pray that your word would guide us, Lord, into the truth, Lord, knowing that your word is truth. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, Proverbs chapter 7 will give us a very memorable, very descriptive, uh, really paints a picture of adultery and lust and the dangers of this adulterous woman. Now, the converse is true as well. There are uh, adulterous men as well, and this is true of all people. But typically, when this sin occurs, when it happens, it goes in this form, right? This form in this fashion. The man who's seeking after these things and then the woman seducing him in this way so that the two come together and both of them are committing the sin against God. And this is a sin that is common to man, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. This is the way it was then, And this is the way it is today. And really, what is being described here, you could see this in any city, in any place in America, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. These types of situations and scenarios are taking place, right? They're taking place, and it's given for our benefit to warn us of the dangers of sin. Because in the moment, we're not thinking clearly, right? In the moment, we're not thinking in the proper way. We have to have our minds girded for action, and we need to understand the will of God and what God thinks about sin, what God thinks about adultery, what God thinks about these issues so that we might avoid it and have nothing to do with it. Then we'll be able to overcome sin. When our mind is set on the word of Christ, then we will overcome sin. So we have to have this mind of Christ, and that's what this is given to us for. It's very obvious that this is for our benefit, for our godliness, right? That what is being described here is meant to be practiced, right? Meant to be practiced. And I say that because there was a pastor I heard of who said the book of Proverbs is not meant to be practiced, not meant to be followed, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. What else are we supposed to do with this but follow it and practice the righteousness that it lays out for us? And this sin of adultery This isn't the first time it's been brought up. We're we're only seven chapters into the book of Proverbs, and this has been repeated over and over and over again because it is such a dangerous temptation, a very dangerous one, and one that has slain many, many a man. So we must be aware of our own weaknesses, of our own frailty, of our own ability to fall, to stumble and fall, so that we are very cautious in the way that we live. So let's look here at Proverbs chapter 7. Verses 1 to 5. He says, My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. My teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call understanding your intimate friend. That, you may, that they may keep you from the adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Here, again, he begins his exhortation with a commendation of wisdom. How important it is that we listen to the word of God, that we listen to his wisdom. This is an issue of life and death. He's telling him that it's essential for you, my son, to keep these words of mine. These aren't suggestions. These aren't tips. These aren't highly effective, you know, uh, principles 
that you can apply to your life and have a successful life. But these are necessary to teach you the will of God and to keep you from sin and ultimately to keep you from hell. Because that's what is at stake for the man who is seduced in this way. He goes to hell and we don't want to go to hell. So that's what he's dealing with here. And he is commending to him the wisdom, the goodness, the righteousness, the truthfulness of everything that he is saying. And that you need to pay attention, you need to take it to heart, you need to bind it within you, and then practice it. Live accordingly. Have your mind fixed on these principles, on these truths, and do not waver to the right or to the left. Don't give any foothold for sin. Don't leave the door cracked even an inch, because if you do, what will happen? It will push through the door. So you have to, to cut it off completely and understand the things that I am saying. Don't play with fire. If you do, you're going to burn your clothes. You cannot take the fire into your bosom without your clothing being burned. So he says, treasure these commandments within you, right? Within you. We remember Psalm 119 verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God, that I might not sin against you. The word of God hidden in the heart keeps us from sinning against God. <clears throat> well, isn't that what he's saying here? Treasure them within you. Put them in your heart. Because if they're in your heart, then they're going to be in your mind. They're going to be in your mouth, in your, on your lips. They're going to be in your hands, your feet. They're going to be controlling the way that you live. So put these words within you and then it'll keep you from sin. Verse two, he says, keep my commandment and live. Live, we are talking about life and death. So we're not talking about your best life now. We're talking about life and death, eternal life and eternal death. That is what is at stake in the word of God. Always, every time we approach the word of God, we need to have that on our mind that we are dealing with issues that pertain to either eternal blessing in heaven or eternal damnation in hell. If I heed the word of God and believe it, it leads to life. If I reject it and disobey it, it will lead to hell. This is the way we have to take the word of God. Deuteronomy 32, 46 to 47 says, When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. These are not idle words. These are our life. Our life. And yes, they don't merely deal with the life to come. It does have implications in this present life, but it's not merely dealing with this present life. It also has implications for the life to come. And the blessed life is the life of obedience to God, keeping his commandments, and we will live by his commandments. He says to keep them as the apple of your eye, that which is precious to you, that which is delightful to you, the apple of your eye. Whatever you delight in is the apple of your eye. Well, the commandment should be the apple of our eye. We should delight in it spiritually. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. 
Call understanding your intimate friend. Bind them on your fingers, write them on your heart. Have them outside of your life, on the outside and on the inside. On your fingers, in your heart, everywhere about your life, have the word of God there. And say to wisdom, you are my sister. You are my intimate friend. Right? Treat wisdom. Treat the wisdom of the word of God as someone who loves you. Someone who cares for you. Someone who has your best interest at mind. Doesn't your sister have your best interest at mind usually? Doesn't your intimate friend have your best interest in mind? Well, if he's your intimate friend, certainly he does. So why would we reject the wisdom of the word of God? Seeing that it is like our sister who cares for us. And it is like our friend who wants our best. No, we need to listen to the word of God and do not spurn the teaching and the wisdom that is there, even when what it tells us to do is difficult. Even when what it tells us to do pushes against our flesh and we don't like it. We don't like to hear those things because our flesh rises up and resists it and is against it. Well, if our flesh is doing that, then we need to beat our flesh down. We don't need to throw out our friend and our sister. Who do we need to throw out? The flesh. Get rid of the flesh. Don't let the flesh dominate you, but rather listen to the words of wisdom. Then verse 5. That they may keep you from the adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Nothing else will keep us from sin. Only an intimate knowledge of Christ's word. This is the only thing that can keep us from sin. Only the word of Christ. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then how can the young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. This is the only way of purity. The only way we can overcome sin is by the word of God. The only way. So if we heed to it, it will keep us from the adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Because when she comes with her words, with her seductions, it is going to be a great temptation. Very difficult to overcome. And we can only overcome it by faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It says in 1 John chapter 5, even our faith. And faith in what? Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Only the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. Faith in the word of Christ will give us the power and the ability to overcome the world. And she is of the world. And she is a very strong temptation. And we can only overcome this by the word of God, by, the, by faith in the word of God. And that's what he's giving to us. Now, verses 6 to 23 describe this scene, the scene that is playing out in front of the wise man, in front of Solomon, that he is now communicating to his son. What he has seen, he's observing the world and observing what he sees, and then he's thinking about it in terms of righteousness, sin, salvation, the word of God, right? That's what he's doing in this passage. Verse 6, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, and discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. He looks out from his house, and he perceives this young man. He sees him there, a young youth, a naive man, someone who is lacking in sense, right? Lacking in what kind of sense? 
spiritual sense. He doesn't have wisdom and understanding, spiritually speaking. He doesn't understand the danger of sin. So his spiritual senses are untrained. He does not have them. He does not possess discernment as is described in Hebrews chapter 5, right? Where uh, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their power of discernment trained by a constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's the discernment we need. Well, he doesn't have that. He's lacking in senses, and it's obvious he does not understand the dangers of sin, of adultery, of evil, of the adulterous woman, because he's going toward her. He's using his free will to go to sin. That's what he's doing here. No one's holding a gun to his head. He's doing it willingly. He's doing it of his own volition, going here toward this woman. Now, here we notice that he calls this man naive, a young man lacking sense. These are not compliments. These are criticisms. He's speaking of him in a negative way. We might say, well, isn't that judgmental? Right? Didn't Jesus tell us to, we're not supposed to judge? Matthew chapter 7, 1. This is what everyone says. Judge not lest you be judged. Well, does that mean that we cannot discern what's going on in the world? That if we see a naive person, if we see a fool, if we see a young man lacking sense, we can't say something about it? No. Because here, he is speaking truthfully. This is true. He's not judging unrighteously, which is what is forbidden in Matthew 7.1, but rather we're to judge with righteous judgment. And here, his judgment is righteous. It is true. And how does he know the young man is naive? Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. How are we to identify what a person is, what they are, what is true of them? Matthew 7, 15. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. How does he know this young man is naive? How does he know he's lacking in sense? Is it just because he's a young man? No. Joseph was a young man in Genesis 37, or in Genesis 39, and he wasn't lacking sense. He fled from the adulterous woman. But this man is lacking in sense and is naive because he's not running away from the adulterous woman. What's he doing? He's running towards her. He's going that way on purpose. So he's observing the behavior of the young man. And as a result of his behavior, he's able to come to the right conclusion that this young man is naive and he is lacking in sense. And he's making an objective judgment, a truthful judgment concerning the young man. And this is what we have to be able to do as well. First to ourselves, right? We have to judge ourselves first and see and make sure we're not doing this, get the log out of our own eye, and then we can help our brother get the speck out of his eye. Then if our brother is behaving this way, then we need to help them out and tell them that they're behaving in a naive way. But to say that someone is naive or lacking sense is not itself a sin. 
if it's in accordance with righteousness. Verses 8 and 9. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Here, he's passing through the street near her corner. This is not accidental. Sometimes temptation comes upon us and there's nothing that we can do about it. It's accidental. We're not wanting to see it, but we're there and all of a sudden it's in our face and we have to deal with it. Okay, That's one thing and it's unavoidable. There are certain times when temptation is unavoidable. Temptations to sin are sure to come, it says in Luke chapter 17. So there are going to be times when temptation is in front of us and when that happens, we just have to deal with it. But to put ourselves needlessly, foolishly, intentionally into temptation, to go into this place willingly of our own volition, this shows that he has a mind. He wants to commit sin, right? So it's no surprise that he's trapped in the end because he's already failing. He failed at the beginning because he intentionally, intentionally willingly passes through near her corner He takes the way to her house. He knows what he's doing. Right, and this is true today as well. Don't we know that there are certain establishments where wicked people hang out at? Casinos, nightclubs, bars. So why would we go to those places knowing that those kinds of people hang out there? Unless we just want to be around them. Right, and then go there and be surprised and shocked that we fall into sin. Well, well, of course you're going to go into sin. You're with bad company, and they're going to corrupt your good morals. So stay away from those places. He should stay away from her street. And if you have to walk two miles around, walk two miles around. Better to do that and have the inconvenience of walking two miles than to have the temptation of this woman. That's what Jesus means when he says, you have to cut off your right hand. You have to pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. Whatever it takes to overcome sin, take extreme measures to avoid it. So don't go near her house. Stay away from her house, right? Don't go near it. He knows what he's doing, and he does it anyway. This is not an accident, but it is intentional. Remember Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8. Proverbs 5, 8. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. So we're supposed to stay away from her and not go near the door of her house. But what's he doing? He's intentionally going near her house. He takes the way to her house because he wants to see her. He wants to see her. Also, when is this happening? In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Isn't this typically when these deeds happen? Not all the time. Certainly they can happen during the daylight when people are brazen. But many times, sin is committed in darkness. More sin is committing under the cover of night. People do this. They go to the clubs during the nighttime, in the late hours of the night, early in the morning, and they go and they drunk and they revel and they do those kinds of things. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 verse 11. He says, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, 
not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Deeds of darkness, he says, versus armor of light. We need to live in the daytime, not in the darkness. Now, again, he's using that in a metaphor, and it's true that deeds of darkness can be committed in broad daylight, and many times they are committed in broad daylight, but it's also true that many times deeds of darkness are committed in the darkness, right, in the middle of the night, when people should be at home, resting, going to bed, sleeping, so that they can get up and go to work the next day. But he's not doing that. He's out carousing, looking for trouble, and she's out carousing, looking for trouble, and trouble's going to find both of them in one another. We should not have anything to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather we ought to expose these things. Verse 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Behold, it just happens. Who would have thought that this woman would come out to meet me? Of course she comes out to meet him. That's why he went that way. And she knows what she's doing as well. He comes, she comes to meet him. She's dressed as a harlot. She's dressed in a seductive way, in an immodest way, in a way that is appealing to men. This is, happens as well. Men are drawn to this type of immodest behavior, this type of immodest clothing. So we can tell something about the person by the way that they dress. In this case, if they dressed as a harlot, what are they in their heart? They're a harlot, right? They dress as a harlot. So there can be some standard, some objective standard of the way that we dress. And the way that we conduct ourselves and present ourselves should be with modesty and proper decorum, not as a harlot, right? Not as a harlot. Whether we're out in society, whether we're in the church, whether we're in the home, wherever we're at, it's not right for women to dress like a harlot, nor for men if men dress that way or, or have that tendency. They shouldn't be doing that as well. But rather, there should be modesty, not this type of dress. And here, he's talking about clothing, the way that she is uh, adorned in this way. And that's not legalism, right? If someone's dressed like a harlot and we say that woman's dressed like a harlot, even though we're talking about clothing and the way that one is dressed, that is not in and of itself legalism because there has to be some standard. There has to be an objective standard and we would not permit someone dressed as a harlot to come into the church and to do those kinds of things and to be a temptation to the men. Right? And if we say to people, you shouldn't dress like this, that's not being evil and it's not being judgmental and it's not being legalistic. It's what's right. It's what's right and true in the way that we ought. And she knows what she's doing. Right? She's doing it on purpose and he knows what he's doing as well. She's also cunning of heart. So outside, the way she dresses outwardly is a reflection of what's going on on the inside. She has a cunning heart. She understands what hooks men. And she's using everything, the whole situation and scenario, in order to dupe the man, in order to get him. She has this cunning heart. Now, I've said this before, I'll say it again. <clears throat> Today, commonly, in our own culture, the way that men are portrayed, in contrast to the way that women are portrayed, is very drastically different, okay? The men are all pigs, disgusting slobs, 
and the men are like beasts, and then the women are all bastions of virtue, uh, innocent, and pure. Okay, well, certainly it is true that men are beasts, right? Men are beasts, and they are driven by their passions, just like this young man is. But it's not true that all women are pure and innocent and have good motives, right? And especially with this Me Too movement that's going on today, you know, the uh, Me Too and You Too movement, uh, not You Too, but uh, anyway, the, the movement where the men are all taking advantage of the women, and the women are innocent victims. But many times these women, they know what they're doing as well. They know, and it takes two to tango. The men are at fault, but the women are at fault as well because they shouldn't be using their body, using their sexuality to advance their career and doing it in these types of ways. They should be dressing in a proper way, in a modest way. But if they did that, then the men wouldn't pay attention to them. So they do it. And then when they get taken advantage of, then they cry out and say, this isn't fair, this isn't right. And then the men are the ones that are held accountable. And certainly the men who have their part in that should be held accountable and they have committed a sin against God. But if the women are using their bodies and using flattery and using their uh, femininity in this way, their body in this way, in order to pull the strings of the men, then they're at fault as well because they're cunning of heart. And it, it's both ways, right? It's a two-way street. So we shouldn't buy into this false movement that condemns one side and not the other. Rather, we should judge with righteous judgment and show no partiality. We should condemn the men who are committing fornication and adultery and using sex and sexuality in order to take advantage of women. And we should condemn the women who are doing the same thing in order to advance themselves and using it to take advantage of men. Both of them are at sin, both are at fault, and both are guilty before God unless they repent of their sin. Here, she is the one who is the seductress. She is the one who is cunning, cunning in heart, knowing full well what she's doing and how she is taking advantage of this man. And she can't later cry foul and say, well, I didn't know what was going on, right? I didn't have those things on my mind. Well, what else do you have on your mind if you're dressed like this, if you're out doing these things? What do you think is on his mind if this is what you're doing in the way that you're conducting yourself? So if you dress like a rat then the snakes will come after you. That's a famous saying from Ishmudliar. If you dress like a rat, you will attract snakes. So the women shouldn't do that, and the men should not partake of it either. Verse 11, she is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner, every corner. Here, look at the way that she's behaving herself. Boisterous, rebellious. She's a loud mouth. She's very forward in the way that she behaves, right, toward the men. She's not modest. She's not discreet. She's not quiet and humble in the proper way that women should conduct themselves that have chastity and modesty. But rather, she's boisterous. You've seen these kinds of women before. Right, if you went to government school like I did, there's plenty of women like this. They're the ones that want all the attention. They're the loud ones. They're always flirting with the boys because they want the young men to give them their attention, to be the object of their desires. Well, that's what she's doing here in the way that she conducts herself. And her feet are not at home. They don't remain home. Instead, she's running about being a busybody in the streets, in the square, at every corner, running around. Instead of working at home and being busy at home, 
like a godly woman, she's busy out in the streets committing sin, which is not a good thing to do. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, commends to us women who are busy, but not busy bodies, but busy at home. Titus 2, 3 to 5. It says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So here, workers at home, busy at home, working there in the proper way instead of being busy about the town, busy in the nightlife, going from club to club, from bar to bar, from street to street, looking for these kinds of men. And this is true even today, that there are many women and many men who they don't want to settle down. They don't want to have a family and be at home with their wife, with their children, with their husband. They want to be out having a good time. They're missing out. All their friends are out partying at the bars, and they want to go out dancing and doing that kind of stuff. Well, when they do, what ends up happening? Inevitably, what happens? There's sin. Sin is committed because they're not busy at home. But if they would take their time and use their time and their energy to build up the home and to be busy there, benefiting the family, their husband and their children, then they wouldn't be out committing sins out in the town square. Okay, verse... 13, so she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him. Notice how forward she is. This is unbecoming of a woman. <clears throat> For a woman to behave in this type of be pattern, this behavior, to be so forward in the way that she is with the man, to seize him, grasp him, brazenly kiss him on the face already like this, she's, she's uh, doing these things? She has no, no modesty at all, right? No civility at all. She's behaving like a man, like a brute beast. Shameful for a woman to behave in this behavior. If we go to Genesis 24, notice the contrast between a righteous woman, Rebecca, and this adulterous woman. Genesis 24, verse 62 2462 says, Now Isaac had come from going to Be'er Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Notice that. He's out in the field meditating. Meditating on what? The Word of God. On the Word of God. He's not going and looking for an adulterous woman, he's not in the city, in the streets going into these areas where there's sin, he's out in the field where there's peace and quiet, where he can be away from everything so he can meditate on the word of God. That keeps you from sin, right? He's not putting himself in these types of needless temptations. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. 
The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here, did she run up and seize him? Did she go and brazenly kiss him? She didn't do any of those things, even though she was about to marry him. Right? She was, at this point, already engaged to him because she had agreed to come and to marry him. But she doesn't do any of those things. She covers herself, showing her modesty. Right? She's conducting herself in this proper way that is true of godly women whenever she goes to meet her future husband. Not in this sinful way as the woman in Proverbs chapter 7. Verses 14 and 15. I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Here, she is a religious hypocrite as well. She's not an irreligious person. She's a religious person. She paid her peace offerings. She paid her vows. She offered her peace offerings. So she's done these things, these religious things. And now she's ready to feast. She's ready to have a good time, right? We've got that out of the way. I went to church. I secured my spot. Now we need to have a good time. We need to have fun all night. We did that part, and now we can move on and enjoy ourselves, right? Commit sin. People think like this. They relegate their Christianity, their religious life, to a certain service here or there, some activity here or there, and then as soon as they perform it, then I can go do whatever I want. I can go commit sin because I'm good with God and I've taken care of everything and now it's up to me to go live and do whatever I please. This is what she is doing. And you find these kinds of people even in churches, even in Christian churches. Yes, they are there doing and behaving in this way. Here in verse, uh, she, she says here, In verse 15, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. As if she was looking specifically for him. But that's not the case. She's just looking for anyone, right? She's looking for anyone. She just wants to have a good time. Whether it's with him or some other man, it doesn't matter. And if he rebuffs her, then what will she do? She'll find someone else. She'll find someone else to go commit her sin with. But she acts like, you're the love of my life. Wherever you, I've been looking for you for all these years, and now I finally found you. And let's come and let's have our fill of pleasure together. Verse 16. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Here, she's appealing to the senses, to his, the look, to the feel, to the smell. Everything is very appealing. She has her couch covered with coverings. She has her Giza sheets on, right? And it's ready, waiting for you there in the bed. The bed has all these fragrant smells that are going to smell good. Everything is set. The lights are dim and low. The candles are burning. The smell is there. Everything is set for a night of sensuality, right? A night of pleasure. It's all appealing to the senses in this way, to our senses, which are good and given to us by God. Is the sense of sight evil in and of itself? What about smell? What about taste? What about hearing, feeling? Of course not. We need those things. They're gifts given to us by God. 
right? They make life better for us, right? It helps us to live. How could we enjoy a meal if we didn't have the sense of taste? How could we enjoy our family and seeing our children and our our wife and the many things in this world without our sense of sight and without hearing? I mean, these things are beneficial and necessary for our body and for making it through this life. So our senses are good if they're used lawfully, if they're used according to the law of God and controlled by the Spirit of God. But if our senses are controlled by sin, then we're using our members for unrighteousness. And in this way, she's appealing to his senses, to his eyes, to his smell, to what he feels, all these things in order to commit sin. So she's appealing to it in this evil and sinful way. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They know how to manipulate our senses in order to get us to commit sin, to enhance and heighten temptation, right? Temptation to sin. They know how to do these things, and they will use every weapon in their arsenal in order to get us to fall into sin and temptation. And we must be aware of that. We cannot live by our feelings. We cannot live by our senses. Many people, they are slaves to their senses, to their pleasures, to what they see, to what they feel, to what they taste, to what they hear, to what they smell. This is how they are. They're driven by these things like an animal, but we can't be like that. We have to be able to overcome those things and have self-control over our eyes, over our nose, over our ears, right, over our hands, whatever it is, we must exercise self-control by the Spirit so that these things do not aid and embed our enemy against us to commit sins against God. Verse 18, come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. Here, she's using a word, a biblical word, love, but is she using it in a biblical way? Is this true love? No, this is actually hatred. She's saying love, but really it's hatred because does this woman have true love on her mind? Of course not, because in this, she's not loving God. She's not loving her husband. She's not loving this man. If she has children, she's not loving her children. And she's not loving her own soul because she's sinning in all of these ways against all of these persons. So this is not love. This is hatred, but she calls it love because it feels good, right? It feels good. So let's take our fill of love and delight. Love and delight. Drink of it until morning. Delight ourselves in caresses. We'll hold each other, right? Uh, Touch each other, squeeze each other, right? We'll do these things and it will be caressing one another and it's delightful for the man and woman to do these things. But what kind of delight is it? Well, it's the delight of Hebrews chapter 11, the fleeting pleasures of sin, the passing pleasures of sin. This is the delight that's on her mind. And we have to see that. We have to see that this delight, yes, it lasts for a moment, But then what gives way to it? Eternal damnation, condemnation for all eternity, suffering and torment in the lake of fire. Then it will be of no consolation to us at all. 
verse 19 to 20. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and at the full moon, he will come home. Here, she's removing any obstacle, any obstacle to sin, any fear. Because most men would say, well, is your husband home? Because if the husband is home, he's not going to go in there, right? He's going he's to run the other way. But she is removing whatever natural restraint exists to curb the appetites and sins of men. She's putting all of those at rest so that he goes full headlong into the sin, right? To remove all fear of the husband catching them. Right, Because some men would say, well, I'm afraid the husband might come home. So she shows that he would, the husband isn't here. Right, He's not here. He's not at home. Now, for her to say that my husband's not at home, doesn't that assume that she knows it's wrong? Sure, sure she knows it's wrong. Because if he was home, would she do it? No, of course not. So that she's saying this, she knows that it's wrong. She knows that this is something that she would not be doing and the young man wouldn't be doing if the husband was at home or even if the husband knew that this was going to go on. They probably would not do these things. So they know it's wrong, but because he's not there and he's not going to see it and he's not going to know about it, then it's okay for us to do it because he's never going to find out. He's not going to see it and he's not going to find out. Well, maybe the husband doesn't find out, but who else sees all things that we do? Doesn't God see all things? He sees all these things. So you think you can hide it from your husband, and maybe you can, though many times the husband finds out. But who can you not hide it from? You can't hide it from God. See, they don't have any fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps us from sin. But if there is no fear of God, then you're just going to do whatever you want. Matthew 13, verse 33. I meant Mark 13, sorry. I was like, that does not look right. Mark 13 does, though. Mark 13, verse 33. Take heed, keep on alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house, putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. In case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Well, we should be on the alert for Christ, and that should keep us from sin. Here, she's trying to put him at ease by saying, the master of the house, my husband, He's gone away, and he won't be home for a very long time, so we have nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about. We can do whatever we please, and we're not going to get caught. He's gone on a long journey. He won't be home until the next full moon, which maybe is true, but maybe not. Maybe he comes home unexpectedly, and then he catches you in the deed. 21, with many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox that goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. 
until an arrow pierces through his liver, and as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Here, the power of sin, the power of sin and temptation. She persuades him, she entices him, she seduces him in this way, and then what does he eventually do? He caves in. He caves in, he follows her, but he doesn't realize he's like an ox being led to the slaughter. He thinks he's going out to pasture. His master is caring for him and taking him out to pasture. He doesn't realize that he's about to go to the butcher. And there the butcher is going to slaughter him. Or like a fool in fetters, being taken away to the place of discipline. He doesn't know that's where he's going, though he should know. He's in fetters. But he's going there in such a foolish way. The arrow pierces the liver. The bird goes to the snare. So he does not know it will cost him his life. He's overcome by sin, and sin gives way to death. Sin always leads to death. It costs him his life. And it can cost him his life in more ways than one. Right? It can cost him his life in that maybe the husband does come home early, and the husband catches him there, and what's that husband going to do? Well, he might have rage. He might take vengeance into his own hands. He might kill both him and his wife. Also, in a just society, what should happen to adulterers? They should be executed publicly for committing this sin. So if it's a just society and you get caught by the authorities and found out and investigated, then maybe you get put on trial and you get executed for committing this sin. Or perhaps no one ever knows and you take the secret with you to your grave. But what happens after death? We face the judgment of God. And we can be sure that then your sins will find you out. And you will face the judgment of God and will be cast into the lake of fire because the wages of sin is death. Either way, whether in this life the life to come, whether it remains a secret or whether it is exposed, if you do not repent of this sin, it will lead to death, to eternal ruin and destruction. It will cost you your life for what? <clears throat> 10 minutes of pleasure? 15 minutes of pleasure? For a, a night of, of a good time? Is it worth it? Is it really worth it for that? That's why it's such a fool who does this, who would give up his, his soul who would go to hell for all eternity for a moment of pleasure. A moment of pleasure. When? Again, all you have to do is get married and have a wife. And then you can enjoy her. You can have a proper pleasure with your wife. It's completely unnecessary. This is so, so foolish. 24. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Now he reminds them again. My sons, listen to me. Pay attention. Right, listen, he says, to the words of my mouth. Right, sit up. Right, shake off your stupor. Right? Pay attention to what I'm telling you. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Doesn't sin begin in the heart? 
It always begins in the heart. So don't let your heart turn aside. Whenever that lust wells up for this kind of a woman, put it to death. Crucify it. Kill it. Don't let it fester there because ultimately, if it festers in your heart, eventually it's going to manifest itself outwardly in your deeds. So don't let it be in your heart and then don't stray into her paths. Stay far away from her. Get as far away as you possibly can from her. 26, for many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Many, many victims. How many victims over the course of this world? It would have to be millions upon millions, billions of victims of this sin, of people who will be in hell for all eternity for this sin. And even, we know, Judah was captured by this sin in Genesis chapter 38. Samson was captured by this sin because he visited a harlot. Even the prophet David, that righteous man, was captured by this sin. These are godly men, at least with, uh, with Samson and David. I think Judah was before his conversion, but at least with Samson and David, they were godly men, men of faith, believing men. And yet those men who were prophets of God were slain by this sin. Now, they didn't remain in it. They repented of it. But it still shows that if we think that we stand, we think that this can't happen to us, you better take heed lest you fall. Right? You better take heed lest you fall. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. So we need to stay far away from it. For in verse 27, her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. It's a highway to hell. It goes right through her house. So stay away from it. Stay away from it unless you want to go to hell for all eternity. That's what he's saying. That's where her chambers lead to. They look good, but ultimately it leads to death and destruction. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the spirit of our God. The unrighteous, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. Don't think that you can practice these sins and inherit the kingdom of God. And some of those sins are fornications and adulterers and homosexuals. Sexual sins. You cannot practice these sins and inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be a Christian adulterer a Christian fornicator, a Christian homosexual, a Christian kidnapper, a Christian thief. You can't do that. Now, does that mean that these sins are unforgivable? No. He says, such were some of you. Some of you used to live like this, but are they living like that now? No, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been delivered from those sins, so don't walk in them anymore. And even if... A believer like David is captured temporarily by the sin, then he has to repent of it. Confess it, expose it, bring it into the open, 
repent of it, and then go and sin no more. So this is the way that we have to treat this sin. We have to detest it and hate it and stay far away from it. And if we have committed it in the past, or if we ever do commit it, then we must repent of it. Repent and not practice it, because we cannot practice sin and inherit the kingdom of God. But we have to overcome sin, and part of overcoming it is seeing it for what it truly is. Seeing it for how detestable it is, we have to view sin the way that God does, and hate it the way that God does. So to that end, let us pray that God would give us his view and his understanding of sin, and that that would be deep within our heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that we would hate sin the way that you do. Lord, so often we take sin lightly. Lord, we don't take it seriously the way that you do. But Lord, help us to see that that is our own flesh, our flesh that wants to make excuses, wants to indulge in sin, pamper sin, conceal it. But Lord, this isn't coming from your spirit. So Lord, help us to to have your mind and your attitude, the very mind of Christ, Lord, toward all sin, but Lord, especially this sin of adultery. Lord, that you would keep and guard us from the adulterous woman or from adulterous men who would seek to come in and destroy and ruin our marriages. Lord, may we not be naive and foolish in thinking that we can hold sin within our bosom and not be burned by it. But rather, Lord, we pray that when it rises up within us, Lord, in our heart or in our mind, through temptation, that we would crucify it and put it to death. Lord, we know that we have much progress to make, Lord, in all areas and in this area as well. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us your mind and, Lord, that you would help us to fight and to overcome sin and, Lord, never to make excuses for it. Lord, guard our thoughts and our minds, Lord, from so much pollution, so much corruption that is out in the world today. And Lord, help us to live pure lives. Lord, may we hold marriage in high regard, being honorable among us. And Lord, we pray that our marriage beds would be undefiled. Lord, with foreigners, with those that do not belong there. And that we would live pure and upright lives. Lord, as well for our children. Lord, we pray that you protect them and keep them in purity. And Lord, that they might be married one day as those that are pure and who have kept themselves unstained from the world, and Lord, that you would provide for them uh, husbands and wives, Lord, who are pure as well and who desire to live a godly life, so that they might overcome this sin, and Lord, do what's pleasing in your sight. So Lord, help us, establish us in the truth, Lord, help us to be pure and upright, and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen.